Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, please open it to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, as we continue in our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Much has happened since Jesus and the twelve disciples first arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. As you noticed uh, in previous weeks from the map, uh, Caesarea Philippi is the furthest north that the Gospels reflect that Jesus traveled uh, during his lifetime. The sequence of events that occur in Caesarea Philippi are a pivot point uh, between Act 1 and Act 2 of Mark's Gospel. They're very important events. In Act uh, 1, Jesus has been uh, presenting himself as the Messiah through ministry, teaching, and, and miracles that have demonstrated his exousia, which you know by now is the Greek word for anyone? Exousia, power, thank you. It's not just any word, Greek word for power. It's a, it's a word that co- uh, communicates innate power, that Jesus didn't earn his power. He didn't have a degree, he didn't train for it. Uh, it's distinctive to who he is. And following the passage that we look at today, Mark will complete uh, the pivot point in his narrative and Act 2 of the gospel will begin. In Act 2, Jesus will begin his decisive journey uh, toward the city of Jerusalem, and a distinctive of the second half of the Gospel of Mark is that he will turn away from public displays of power, uh, and he will begin in private settings to pour into and to prepare the disciples for what lies before them. But here in Caesarea Philippi, the rapid hard-hitting, revelatory chain of events has been intended to bring the disciples and Mark's readers up to speed about the nature of Jesus' mission. Here, when asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, makes his great confession, thou art the Christ. Finally, the disciples, the twelve, are starting to grasp that Jesus is the Messiah, but there remains a gap between who Jesus is as the Messiah and what he's come to do as the Messiah. Here Jesus also teaches the disciples about this all-important what. He told them, namely, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day rise again. They couldn't reconcile this with their preconceived notions about Messiah. They were thinking, Jesus said, man's thoughts and not God's thoughts. They had triumph in mind, but like so many, they couldn't recognize that tragedy must precede triumph. Their short-sightedness also led them to misunderstand their role as disciples. So here too in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus clarifies that the road to glory leads through suffering. Not just for him, but for his disciples. He underscores that no man or woman can come to him uh, except for they give nothing less than their whole lives. Jesus said to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to, to gain your soul, and to glorify the Father in the process. This is the only way for one's soul to be saved. Even gaining the whole world and all that it has to offer, Jesus says, will leave you a short in the end. And suffering eternally a a loss, a great loss. And then, just in case the disciples are wondering if the trade-off is worth it, uh, God gives a representative group of the disciples a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, which we saw last week. It's here in Caesarea Philippi, in an area that is known for pagan worship on Mount Hermon, where Jesus leads Peter, James, and John, that he is transfigured before them. The three are made privy to the inherent splendor of Jesus. 
with the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the metamorphosis of Christ is not a change in nature. It's actually a revelation of the essential glory that has been his for all of eternity. And then the disciples, the three, saw him speaking to Moses and Elijah, the greatest representatives of the Old Testament law and prophets. And what the disciples are invited to recognize is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that history has been pointing to. And then they heard the Father speak from heaven, attesting to the fact that Jesus is his beloved Son and following the command to listen to him. On the way down the mountain, Jesus and the three have a conversation about the necessity that Elijah would come before Messiah, and Jesus points to John the Baptist as the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then again, he also warns them that like John, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And now, beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus and the three disciples have descended the mountain to return to the other nine disciples. And the event that transpires here is meant to tie all of this together in a meaningful way for the twelve and also for you and I. It has been easy to this point to follow Jesus, but we are to pick up in Acts 2 that it's going to become increasingly hard to follow Jesus. This is the point of the Christian life. What starts easy grows harder and harder as we walk with Him. You remember doing connect-the-dot puzzles? You know, a puzzle where there's just random numbers associated with dots. There's no seeming rhyme or reason as to how they're scattered on the page. It just looks like nothingness. But then as you begin to connect the numbers sequentially with lines, uh, it begins to take shape. And what appeared as random nothingness before, when you sequentially connected all of the dots, suddenly uh, turns into something significant, something that you can see. The metaphor of connecting the dots is about looking beyond what you can't or don't initially see. Like the old adage that sometimes we're too far into the forest to recognize the trees, sometimes we're so taken by the world that we see around us that we fail to see the big picture. So connecting the dots is a kind of learning uh, experience where we uh, gain understanding about what we couldn't see before. We, we now have eyes to see something significant, something that's there, and it helps us to make sense of the unknown. Well, like looking at a page full of randomly placed numbers, the disciples are being uh, exposed to a series of truths that once comprised into a whole will not only help them understand who Jesus is and what He's come to do, but it will also prepare them for the life that's destined to unfold before them. And like the disciples, we too need a new set of eyes where we can look at information, or more importantly, revelation, and with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we can come to knit together knowledge or wisdom that will not only inform our faith, but it will also inform uh, our conduct, how we live our practice. Now, a recap, particularly of the transfiguration, is important because there are several contrasts between that event on the mountain and what happens here in this story uh, in the valley. The contrasts are striking and meaningful. The transfiguration happens on a mountain. This event happens in the valley below. In the transfiguration, there was glory. Uh, in the valley, there's going to be suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominated the scene. Uh, in the valley, it's been Satan who has been dominating. In the transfiguration, the heavenly father was pleased, but here in this story, an earthly father is distraught. In the transfiguration, there was a perfect son, but here there is a demoralized son. 
At the transfiguration, fallen men were overwhelmed by holy wonder, but here in this story, a fallen son is stricken with unholy demonic terror. All of this is to help the disciples and us connect the dots. This passage is also latent with exasperation. Everyone in the story is frustrated or aggravated. The disciples are exasperated. Uh, The crowd is exasperated. The scribes are exasperated. Uh, The father is exasperated. Even Jesus is exasperated. All of this frustration and contrast with what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration served to help us see a warning and a rebuke. Now, no one likes a warning or rebuke. Do you? If you do, you might be a sadist. Uh, no, no one likes to be rebuked. But rebukes, when they come from someone who loves us, when, when it, they come from someone who has our best interest in mind, are intended to help us. Rebukes from our parents, although unpleasant, uh, are important because they teach us to stop touching hot stoves. They keep us away from things that will harm us or uh, might do damage to us. Rebukes from a friend oftentimes are intended to help us recognize things uh, that we've become blind to, that that we no longer see. As Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's the main thing that we are meant to discover in this passage, a warning uh, and a rebuke. And we need these if we are to connect the dots in our faith. We need these because our Savior loves us. And if we are His followers then He will again and again warn us, and He will again and again rebuke us until we have been fully formed into His likeness. So Jesus comes down the mountain, and He is immediately greeted uh, by this chaotic scene. There's this great crowd surrounding the other nine disciples, and the scribes are engaged in an argument with Jesus' nine disciples. This is likely another group sent from Jerusalem to observe Jesus and to catch Him doing something that they can find fault with. Now, what's interesting is that Mark uses his favorite word here, euthus. Uh, It's the word that we translate immediately. He uses it three times in the story. And he says in verse 15, Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. It's interesting because typically the response to Jesus of wonder and awe follows what Jesus has done. This preemptive response to just seeing Jesus illustrates that the crowd, even though they don't believe even though they haven't seen Jesus transfigured uh, on the mountain, recognize that He is different from everyone else. He's not like the disciples. He's not like the scribes or the Pharisees or the priests. Even if they haven't connected the dots about who Jesus is and what He's come to do, they recognize that when Jesus speaks, He speaks with substance. And what He says, He always backs up with action. So as soon as Jesus shows up, He becomes the center of attention. The chaos and the commotion is silence, and Jesus directs his question to the scribes. What are you arguing with them about? That is to say, if you have questions, direct them to me. I'm the master. But neither the disciples or the scribes respond. The scribes have grown leery of trying to hold, take Jesus to task and hold him accountable, and the disciples are doubtless happy that Jesus is back, and they're content just to shut up. But out of the silence, the voice of the afflicted son's father speaks. Teacher, verse 17, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now, now pause for just a moment. 
Just think about that moment of holiness and glory and revelation on the mountain. Jesus comes down off the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's immediately greeted not for who he is, but he's greeted with this shocking, destructive, distorting evil. Think about the plight of this son who uh, the, the father's going to say this has been with him since childhood. He's, he's been a deaf mute. He's, he's never been able to hear words of comfort and encouragement and love and assurance from those around him. He's never been able to speak and, and try to put words to the torment and the experience of what he's going through. And the juxtaposition between the transfiguration on the mountain and the moment of evil here is very, very important for us to pay attention to. Because the, the evil that Jesus now encounters is an argument for the need for the one who was transfigured on the mountain. We need him in this world. Jesus, the Son of God. This is the one who eclipses the likes of Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This one is our only hope. Because if this kind of evil really actually exists and really has this kind of destructive power, then we are people who are desperately in need of protection, of rescue. This is why Jesus must shake the disciples of their visions of grandeur about him ascending into Jerusalem uh, and placing a crown on his head and taking a throne and throwing off Rome. Because while there is no evil in this world or problem that you and I face that is any match for Jesus Christ, nothing will ever truly, lastingly change as long as Jesus is just the Son of Man with His disciples. Now there are two things in the Father's answer we ought to pay close attention to. First, the graphic descriptions of evil every time Jesus encounters a person who's possessed are meant to, uh, to be to us a warning of the very real existence of evil. We see here how very destructive evil is. We should also recognize how much Jesus cares about the suffering of people. We need to recognize that Jesus loves and cares people when he invites this father uh, to share his story, to express his heart. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. This is what evil does. It is always destructive. It never produces good. It will never give you life. It never leads to good fruit. It never leads to peace and reconciliation and truth. It never ever goes in that direction. Evil is evil. Bottom line. Be warned, hearers. Evil exists. Now here's the problem. Evil doesn't always appear evil to us. Sometimes evil looks beautiful. Sometimes it looks downright attractive. It doesn't always appear uh, as graphically as it does here. In fact, the Bible says that Satan's strategy is to remain hidden. Most often, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 tells us, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But during Jesus' ministry, the demonstration of evil was far more visible and pervasive because Satan was throwing an all-out blitz at Jesus to try to undermine God's redemptive purposes. Evil doesn't always appear as evil to us. Lust isn't just admiring beauty. It's giving oneself permission to mentally consume the image of another, uh, the image, uh, another image bearer to feed one's own desire, one's own fantasy, one's own pleasure. 
Gossip isn't just prayer for someone that you're concerned about. Uh, It's a salacious attempt to show that you're in the know, and you're doing so at the expense of another person. Pride isn't a healthy self-love or self-esteem. It's it's an attempt to drive self as the most important thing, to put yourself in place above other people. Lashing out in anger isn't building up other people. It isn't trying to help them be better. It's just about being abusive and controlling in an attempt uh, to meet with your desire to have the world evolve around you. Sin is never good. Rebellion is never good. Disobedience is never good. Lust is never good. Gossip is never good. Stealing is never good. Pride is never good. Evil is evil. And in this physical picture, you see what happens when evil has its way and takes over a person. It's not this that this boy isn't spiritual. It's, it's that he's been robbed of his humanity. And the spirit inside of him is, is bent on actually destroying him. This is where evil goes. This is what sin does. It robs us of who we were meant to be as God's image bearers, which is why Jesus warns us in John chapter 10, verse 10, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Where in your life are you tempted to look at what God says as evil as something less than evil? Where is, what is seductive to you? What's deceptive? What's attractive? Where, because of its attraction, because of its pleasure, because of its supposed beauty, are you letting down your guard? Are you toying with things that are ultimately only destructive to you and to others around you? And then there's a second thing we should note in this Father's response. It's depicted in the disciples. When we come to recognize that evil is real, that it's not just out there, but that it's in here, then we must embrace the reality that we are utterly powerless to defeat evil on our own. Like the disciples, we have no independent, self-sufficient ability to control or to overcome evil whatsoever. We may be able to recognize it, especially when it's out there, when it's in someone else's life. We may be able to, to bring it into the light, to temporary, temporarily restrain it or, or to uh, uh, control it, but we cannot kill it. We cannot kill it. And when the disciples, obviously in unbelief, obviously in self-reliance, tried to take on that kind of evil, they found that they were utterly powerless to do so. And what that means is that there should never be a time in our lives where we shouldn't live with a needy heart, with a self-awareness of our propensity toward that which God sees as evil. We ought to live like this father trying to get his son to Jesus Christ, always seeking the protection and the delivering grace of Jesus Christ, always celebrating the grace that can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And if our lives are godly, And anyway, may we not boast, but may we praise God that He's delivered us and that He's produced a holiness in us because any good that we can think, any good that we can do is only empirical evidence of His delivering, empowering, and transforming grace because if we had any power to take on evil, Jesus would not have had to come. 
The cross argues for our hopelessness. The cross argues for our helplessness. There is nothing that we are capable of in terms of overcoming the evil that besets us apart from the transforming grace of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so when Jesus hears the report of this father, he responds with words of rebuke. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me. Now, the lesson contained in this experience is clearly for the disciples. It's the disciples that have failed to understand the gravity of evil and the necessity of dependence upon God. But Jesus uses the word generation, which is never applied to the disciples. And so he has something more in mind than just the disciples here. He's speaking to the so-called religious leaders of the day, and he's speaking to the crowd. And as we'll see in a moment, he's also speaking to this father. Friends, he's also speaking to you and me. We are the faithless generation. We are the ones who are apt to fail to connect the dots, to heed the rebukes and the warning, and to respond rightly. The rebuke comes at this time because Jesus' time is short. It won't be long before Jesus uh, will be taken from them. He will ascend to be at the right hand of the Father after His resurrection from the dead. And when that happens, Jesus knows that the disciples and you and I must come to depend upon the Holy Spirit if we're to accomplish what He has left us here to do. Like the disciples, like anyone who would be rescued from sin and find deliverance and victory over evil, we must shake off self-reliance, yielding ourselves in the ever-present moment to only what God can avail us. Rebukes are hard to swallow. And they rightly grieve us. But friends, listen to me. In the rebukes of Jesus, there is always grace to be found. Jesus isn't giving up on the disciples. And He won't give up on you. The, the, the question in Jesus' rebuke is how long are we going to struggle before we are finally ready to wave the white flag of surrender to our self-reliance? How long before we will abandon unbelief? How long before we will rest as Jesus as our hope in this life and in the next? How long before we learn to abide in Jesus and daily drink in His grace, whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the valley? As this boy is brought to Jesus, we see what is often veiled and hidden from our human eyes. Verse 20 says, they brought him, the boy to Him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. As the Father tells Jesus, this problem with evil isn't a recent development. It's been a persistent problem ever since he was a child. And the same is true for you and I. Friend, you were born into this world, separated God from God with a sin problem. Evil is in your family tree. Despite a recent survey, a theological survey among evangelicals, which shows that 65% of evangelical Christians believe that people are born in innocence. That is not what the Bible says. And as long as we persist in that delusion, we, are, we, we remain at arm's length at best from the solution over our sin and the evil which is bound up in us. It's important to recognize here that the demons already recognize the truth about Jesus. 
that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, James is going to write in his letter later on something that must have been born out of this event when he writes, you believe that God exists, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So what's the difference between their belief and ours? Well, we see it in the exchange that follows. Following his description of his son's torment, the father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, full of compassion, responds to this father with a softer rebuke. If you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is essentially saying to this father, uh, it's not a question of what I'm capable of. Uh, It's not a a question of, of my ability or my willingness. Your problem is your faith. If you come to me with faith, you will find that God is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine. And the same is true for you and I as we battle sin, as we wrestle in temptation, as we recognize our tendency toward evil. Our problem is not a lack of God's power, it is a lack of our own faith. So what help is there for people like you and me who struggle to have faith? Well, we find it in the Father's reply, verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. What a humble confession. The Father now sees what the disciples all along have struggled to see, that the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. And so he humbly confesses that while he has a desire to believe, while he wants to believe, he still finds unbelief bound up inside of him. And he cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This Father's prayer ought to be every Christ follower's prayer. Lord, I believe. I walk in faith, but not always. I need you. Ours is but a small faith. And the acknowledgement before God in the midst of need with even a mustard seed is all that Jesus requires. Every Christ follower here is familiar with those moments of panic and fear where we forget that God is with us, that He's in us, that He's for us. Moments where we become painfully self-aware that we've been going it on our own, that we've been content to play the role of deity over our own world, and we lose our way because we failed to connect the dots, because we didn't heed the warning, because we haven't heard the rebuke. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief because I know I need your rescue, and I know I need your protection. And I know my heart is wandering. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you out. Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. It's important to note in Mark's timeline that Jesus really isn't interested anymore in displaying his power. As the crowd begins to reassemble, he's not interested in putting on a show. He's, sw- he's shifting to the focus of his mission and coming, which is to die. Before the crowd can reassemble, Jesus levels his unassailable power over this demon and commands him never to return again, and he heals the son. In a moment, from the word of Jesus, 
This family's life, their entire experience, this boy's suffering is eradicated, changed forever. What the crowd sees is the seemingly lifeless body of the son, which they took to mean that he was dead. But verse 27 says, Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up. It's the Greek word, egyro. And then he says, and he arose. Anistomy is the other Greek word. The son wasn't dead, but for the benefit of the disciples and for the benefit of you and I, the language here is intentionally resurrection language. These are the terms that will be applied to Jesus when he rises from the grave. It's intended to show us that that the person in the midst of their suffering who finds grace to believe in Jesus will also taste of resurrection. Here's a picture of the power of Jesus. The Son of God possesses ultimate power. There is no uh, evil force in the heavenlies. There is no sin or wickedness in us that is any match for Jesus. We are availed of life-changing, eternity-altering power when even with the smallest of faith, we turn in dependence to our God. With the story essentially complete, Mark brings home the shift to pour into and prepare the disciples. With one last lesson, Jesus seizes the opportunity to address the elephant in the room. Verse 27, or verse 28, I'm sorry. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We see here the pattern of the in-house motif where Jesus will speak in public, but then he will treat to a private place and he will uh, teach the disciples the meaning of what they have experienced or heard. He wants to help the disciples connect the dots. He's a tender Savior, teaching. He's not rejecting. He's not harshly reprimanding. He's teaching the disciples this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. As hard as it might be for us to imagine, the disciples actually thought about taking on the demonic without relying on the importance of prayer. They had failed to observe that Jesus' life was awash with communion that he had with the Father, that every teaching, every miracle performed happened in the wake of constant communication with his Father. But are we really any different than the disciples? Here the disciples reveal the independent, self-sufficient, autonomous spirit that resides in each and every one of us to simply go it alone. We have failed to recognize that in the smallest of challenges and in life's great challenges, we are intended to believe in such a way as to be driven into dependence on a God who wants to be there for us, who can do what we are incapable of doing. We are meant to discover That faith, genuine, spirit-enabled faith, necessarily leads to the privilege and power of dependent prayer. And why is that important? Well, prayer calls me to abandon my reliance on me. Prayer is the abandonment of hope in me. Prayer is the abandonment of my delusion. It uh, is an abandonment of my strength and my wisdom and my propensity to see things unclearly. If I'm strong, if I'm able, if I'm sufficient, if, if I have all the wherewithal, then prayer doesn't make sense. I don't need God, and thus we do not pray. 
Prayer is not a religious game playing. It's not religious formality. Prayer is, by its very nature, an abandonment of self uh, and to, uh, an attempt to rest in the power of God. Prayer is the spiritual practice that reminds me that Jesus is my only hope. Prayer is faith turned to God. So how often do you live your faith? Well, the answer to that is how often do you pray? Because faith necessarily leads us to dependence upon God in prayer. There's a principle here. Inasmuch as Jesus will demonstrate His power through the weakness of the cross, through the suffering of the cross, and by that suffering, He will provide for the redemption of humanity. So you and I must turn to the weakness of prayer, turning away from our self-sufficiency, turning away from our self-reliance, and in in an attempt to draw upon God, we must show ourselves to be weak in prayer that we might experience the strength of God. And there's also a practice here. The practice of prayer is the simplest thing that you and I can do. When crisis strikes, when there's a problem to solve, what do we do? Well, we who live in the West pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We muster our resources. We grab all of the things that we have at our disposal, and we run to fix the problem. How foolish to begin in prayer. But the simplest things are the most important things. And the reason why the disciples failed, the reason why you and I so often fail, is because they fail to do the most important thing. Wave the flag of dependence upon God. So genuine faith, led of the Spirit, leads us to abandon self-reliance in exchange for dependence on our communion with God. And we need this more than we know because evil is real. It is in us, and we are powerless alone to overcome it. The life of faith in Jesus is akin to uh, critical incident training. This is something that corporations do. Critical incident training is where you take all the resources of skill and experience and creativity and intuition of a person and you put them to the test. And effectiveness in the test is measured by the way a person responds to crisis. The Christian life is like that. We are continually uh, being confronted uh, with conflict, with critical incidents. It's the testing of our faith. And it's not intended to prove failure. That's not the point of this story. It's intended to create the opportunity for growth and change. But by throwing them into a situation, these nine disciples, where they instinctively did the wrong thing, Jesus is hoping that they will learn. That they will learn that if they had only been dependent upon God, things might have gone differently. Just think of the myriad of problems and challenges that you face. Think of the sins that so frequently reoccur in your life. If you could be honest with yourself right now, How often are you in a position of calling something good which God considers evil? Something that you think you need, but God considers to be destructive. In your marriage, do you recognize that there is something bound up in you, the propensity of which would destroy your spouse? That you would speak harsh words. That you would manipulate in order to get your way. Do you recognize that? And if you do, how often do you pray that you would be the best spouse that your spouse needs? That God would do in you the work that must be done if you would be like Christ to her or to him with your money? Do you recognize the tendency in yourself to take a little extra money and just do what you want with it without talking to God? 
How often do we take the resources that have been dispensed to us from, from our good God and we will spend them on ourselves without thought on things that are actually destructive for us? Or at, at the very least, things that He would have directed us otherwise. Do you pray about God's work in you to help you restrain yourself that you might be a force for good? In parenting, how often does that impulse within you rise up to just want to uh, shape your kids into conformity to the way you want them to be? Because you want your life to be replicated, because you want to live vicariously through them, because you just want them to be like you. When we ought to be praying, God, help me see in my son, in my daughter, what you created them to be. Help me have the wisdom to uncover who you made them to be. Do you pray for God's work in you for the good of your own kids at work, in your neighborhood? We could go on and on. Do you recognize in each and every situation the propensity for you to be just like the disciples, to go it alone, thinking you know enough, thinking that you're strong enough, only to miss connecting the dots of the important connection between faith and dependence upon God and prayer? Uh, prayer is, at once, a confession of my neediness, uh, the neediness of my faith, and a celebration of God's grace over me. Do you believe do you pray? Those two are inextricably tied if we are to follow well our Savior. I would speak to the person who may have never prayed at all. Maybe you're a lot like the father in this story, and you'd say, I, I want to believe, but my head and my heart and my life is flooded with unbelief. I can't seem to overcome it. Can I just encourage you that the prayer that God likes to hear the most is the prayer of the person who's struggling to believe. If I could just challenge you just to believe for a moment that there's a God who loves you, that He's there for you, that He's done everything possible in the person and work of Jesus Christ to make it possible for you to believe and to be forgiven and to find a restraining force at work in your life to direct you toward good and away from the sin which so easily entangles us. Would you just cry out to Him? God, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. I recognize that there's something at work in me that I don't control, that nine times out of ten I will choose the wrong thing, that I am my own worst enemy. I, I want to believe that in the work of Jesus Christ that I can find forgiveness and I can find something that would change me from the inside out. If you will pray that prayer, you will find that He is mighty to save. You're sitting by someone whose life has been dramatically transformed by simple faith that Jesus is who He says He is, that He did what He said He came to do, and that when He did it, He was doing it for you. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help. Help, O oh God, our unbelief. Because we know that we need Your rescue, and we need Your strength. And we know that we have wandering hearts. God, help us to heed the warning, the, the rebukes of Scripture that point us to You. In abandonment of self, help us to believe that You are. And that by believing, we might find life in Your name. Help us to connect the dots 
so that we wouldn't merely believe, that, but that we would learn like the disciples learn in this passage that their faith must drive them to dependence upon prayer. And as we pray, may we discover the greater things that you desire to do in our lives and in our church. And we pray all of this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to just uh, correct something that you see in your weekend program. There was a a mistype on our stewardship snapshot. the percentage of where we are in our annual budget is actually 68.5. So the, the number that we're 6.5 behind is the accurate number. So with that correction made, I would just reiterate, we're asking you to pray. Pray. Why? Because our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is no need that we face that He can't address. He simply puts these tests before us to see how we'll react. And the first instinctive thing we ought to do is not reach for our wallets, it's to pray. Because when it's all said and done and He gives us the miracle of provision and we continue the ministry that He's doing among us, we will be able to say, all glory goes to God. Yes, Jason was a part of it. Trace was a part of it. Todd was a part of it. Jake was a part of it. But ultimately, it was God working in the hearts and lives of His people to meet the needs of the body of Christ. So pray. And then let's faithfully stock the shelves, do our part. Second, next Sunday is, our, uh, is the Sunday before National First Responders Day. Uh, if you were here with us uh, three years ago, uh, we inaugurated this event and COVID shut us down, but we're very excited to relaunch it. So we're inviting first responders of every sort throughout the valley to come to a service dedicated to honoring them, to being able to pray over their families, and then we're going to serve them at Webster immediately after uh, just to say thank you for all that they do. Your part in this, uh, in addition to what Trey said, you could sign up to bring food or to help serve, uh, is to just say thank you to a first responder around you. Uh, It's an oftentimes a no thanks job. They're out running risk when we're all asleep on many occasions. So this is just a way for us to honor the principle that Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than that a man or a woman would lay down their life for their friends. So our, our church has a heart for taking care of our first responders, and I need your help to do that next week. We have a great gift to give them each and every first responder. So pray for that and be here for it. Then the last thing, because prayer is essential. Uh, And uh, because of a partnership we have with Crossway Publishing, uh, I'm very excited to give uh, every single and every family a copy of Praying uh, the Bible. It's a book by Donald Whitney, and it's a very easy read, okay? So listen, nobody should be intimidated. Super easy read. But this will transform your prayer life. If you struggle to pray for any length of time, how many of you are like me and you're easily distracted? Okay, this book is for you. Uh, This book is a powerful uh, uh, lesson on just simply using God's Word to talk to Him uh, so that we don't just pray the same old things about the same old things over and over. I I read this book a week ago, and I'm just loving the experience of praying through the Bible. Uh, And whether you have five minutes or 30 minutes, this is going to be a a great resource for you. So I'm happy for you to have a copy of it. Uh, And as you exit this morning, Mary Beth and Rick are back there, and they're going to give you one. And I hope that you will invest the time. Why? Because faith, genuine spirit-enabled faith, necessarily draws us to the power and provision of prayer. All right? Now with that, I close with uh, Jude 
uh, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.